Good evening, everyone. Welcome to the Midtown Scholar Bookstore. My name is Alex Brubaker. Uh, it's a pleasure uh, to have you here with us on this uh, beautiful Wednesday evening. Um, if you are new to the store, I would encourage you to take an events newsletter up at the front counter. We have uh, tons of free and open to the public events uh, coming up here in the next couple months, so we'd love to see you back at the Scholar. Um, one event I would like to highlight is uh, not this Saturday, but the next, June 22nd, uh, we have Dr. Randy uh, Epstein, who is a lecturer at Yale University. She's visiting the Scholar to discuss her new book. It's called Aroused, the History of Hormones and How They Control Just About Everything. It's going to be really fascinating. Um, it's free and open to the public, uh, so we hope to see you back at the bookstore for that event. Now, I have the pleasure and honor of introducing our speaker here this evening, Bernice Hausman. Bernice is the chair of the Department of Humanities at Penn State College of Medicine in Hershey. She is the author of Viral Mothers, Mother's Milk, and Changing Sex. Her newest book, which we are here for tonight, is called Anti-Vax, Reframing the Vaccination Controversy. In the book, Hausman wants to engage public health officials, the media, and each of us in a public dialogue about the relation of individual bodily autonomy to the state's responsibility to safeguard a citizen's health. The book has received widespread acclaim across the medical community. Um, I'll just read a few blurbs here. Barbara Rothman says that Hausman has provided us with something we as a society needed, an intelligent, thoughtful, nuanced discussion of the vaccine controversy. She helps us think through the media flurry and has produced a book that speaks to the social sciences and the humanities, a brilliant book. Elena Konis of the University of California, Berkeley, writes that anti-vax is an intellectual journey into and across the cultural underpinnings of contemporary vaccination skepticism. Bernice Hausman, as author and narrator, is a masterful guide. Without further ado, please join me in giving a warm Harrisburg welcome to Bernice Hausman. Thank you very much. Um, I wanted to thank the bookstore for hosting this reading. Um, so I just moved to this area in November. Today is my six, seven month birthday, uh, seven month birthday anniversary on my new job at, uh, at Penn State College of Medicine and some of my colleagues are here, some students from the College of Medicine also. I grew up in Pennsylvania, outside of Philadelphia, but I've lived for the last 23 years in Blacksburg, Virginia, where there was no bookstore. And um, I, really, um, I really just cherish this place, so thank you very much. So I, I started writing this book with the following question. What bothers people about vaccines and vaccinations? And how can these concerns be culturally and socially understood? So it turns out that there's a story to tell about vaccine hesitancy and refusal that is only occasionally about autism. And that's the only time I'm gonna mention autism in this talk. Um, or there are many, many stories. Anti-vax traces those stories through two primary strategies. So the first strategy that I use, take, which takes up the first four chapters of the book, addresses how current popular, the current popular narrative of the misinformed, gullible, vaccine-refusing parent got established in the media as well as popular and scholarly writing. The second strategy, which is addressed in chapters five through eight, explores issues that emerge if we take a critical eye to the history that I look at in the first four chapters. So um, issues like denialism, trust in scientific facts, and medicalization. 
So that, those, those chapters then deal with those issues. Chapters nine and 10 then look at two different sources of data, um, popular zombie fiction and film. That was my favorite chapter to write. Um, and, my well, and also my favorite chapter to research, because researching zombies is pretty fun. Um, and then um, data, qualitative interview data that my research group has collected for a number of years about um, health beliefs and vaccination. So those chapters nine and 10 then look at the data from those, those two different kinds of data to provide more evidence of how concerns about vaccines and vaccination are embedded in culturally relatively widespread, are, are embedded culturally relatively widespread and expressed through prominent cultural forms. So the result is a book that tries to reframe the controversy by taking vaccine dissent seriously. Not necessarily to agree with vaccine dissent, but to resist being dismissive or inflammatory, which is what the media does right now, um, and to interpret its complex origins and current arguments. So that is to show vaccine dissent in a context in which it makes sense rather than representing it as an anti-science nonsense. So to conduct this analysis, I have to take a neutral stance toward vaccination and its contributions to public health. Someone just asked me about five minutes ago, like, was I for or against vaccination? Um, so you have to read the book to find out. But, um, but essentially, to do the research, I don't take a stance one way or the other. I do explain my own vaccination practices in the introduction to the book, so that's where you'll find some of that discussion. It's not easy to take a, a neutral stance. In this, um, in this day and age, it's not very popular in the current climate. So when I published an article, an op-ed piece in the Philadelphia Inquirer on March 31st of this year, about um, the problem with uh, restricting exemptions to vaccine mandates. An alum of Penn State College of Medicine wrote to the person in charge of alumni relations and said that the college needed to um, have a retraction immediately of what I had written. Um, and and, and it, that it was a problem that I identified myself as a faculty member at Penn State College of Medicine and wrote an op-ed piece that was not 100% pro-vaccine. It wasn't anti-vaccine either, but it just goes to show how, the, uh, how inflammatory the context is, and if you're not 100% one way or the other, it's a problem. So, um, the, uh, but a neutral stance is necessary in order to do this research and identify the cultural trends influencing vaccination concerns. Such neutrality is a research stance, not a personal one, although my personal views have been tempered by my research findings. And again, I, I talk about this in the introduction to the book and then somewhat in the, in the final pages of the book. So I have a few things I'm gonna say about what I've learned and then I'm gonna read to you from portions of the book so you can kind of get a sense of the way I make my arguments. So what I have learned, vaccine dissent is varied. And actually, you don't hear the term vaccine dissent in the book very much because it's a term I started to use after the book came out um, as a way of talking about various kinds of things like vaccine hesitancy, skepticism, refusal, um, resistance. Um, paying attention to the squeaky wheels is not necessarily the best way to understand what people are worried about. So you probably heard that phrase, right? Squeaky wheel gets the most attention. So, one of the problems is that um, there's a lot of public discourse um, on the internet and um, about certain kinds of concerns about vaccines. 
But those do not, in my experience, capture the things that a, a lot of ordinary people are really worried about. And so if you just pay attention, if you just pay attention to the squeaky wheels, it's, there's an easy conversation to have. But it doesn't actually tell us a lot about why people, why vaccine dissent is, continues to be a significant cultural issue. Um, Non-scientific approaches to understanding vaccine dissent as a cultural phenomenon are crucial. And in that vein, the humanities are key. Negative capability, the tolerance for ambiguity and uncertainty is a necessary disposition to do this research. So the actual quotation from John, poet John Keats who defines negative capability as the capacity to, to tolerate, and here's where the quote starts, uncertainties, mysteries, doubts, without any irritable reaching after fact and reason. So that perspective, negative capability, is really important. Concerns that are raised by vaccine skepticism, such as what is our responsibility to others, what is health, how can I protect my child, who decides what is best for my child, these are all significant and deserving of attention. Answers to these questions are not always self-evident. Another thing I learned, an important question in a pluralist democracy is how we balance a diversity of values and beliefs in the context of the common good. And then there's the existential questions that if I go and if you really go into a deep dive, I call it kind of going down the rabbit hole. Um, there are existential questions that are really crucial. Can we control nature? Is disease prevention the same as health? Can I dissent? Whom can I trust? Those questions emerge if you actually explore um, vaccine dissent with any kind of attention to its complexity. So I'm, I'm going to read now from the first chapter in the book. Um, and this is a section of the book called Reporting and the Problem of Parental Belief. So in this chapter, so the, the, re, the primary research in chapters one and chapter two were developed by um, two uh, undergraduate student researchers at Virginia Tech, where I taught. I ran an undergraduate research group on vaccination controversy there from 2010 to 2018. And so um, a lot of the um, primary work was done in collaboration with my student researchers. And so one of the things that we did was to look at how the news reported on vaccination from about 1980 to 2015. We looked at Time Magazine, the New York Times, and then um, online we looked at um, Salon.com and Slate um, obviously, those didn't go back into the 80s as, as uh, news reporting place uh, venues. Um, and so we created, so chapter one is a timeline of if you read, if you, if you look at what happens in reporting on vaccination, you can see um, a kind of an ebb and a flow of concern, and you also see a lot of excitement and also a lot of concern about developments in vaccinology or the development of vaccines. The second chapter then goes back over that history and looks at the tone of reporting and traces how reporting became much more inflammatory after basically 2004, 2005. So this is toward the end of um, chapter one. With the title of that chapter is, So What Bothers You About Vaccines? And the section is called, Reporting and the Problem of Parental Belief. 
While stories of infectious disease dominated the news in 2010 to 2015, vaccination controversy itself became an inflammatory focus of reporting, as documented in the next chapter. One of the things that accompanied inflammatory reporting on vaccination was an increasing focus on voluntary non-vaccination. That is, reporting tended to focus on the vaccine debate itself, and when outbreaks of infectious disease, viral disease occurred, voluntary non-vaccination tended to be mentioned as a primary cause. You see this a lot. We've, we've, we're in the middle of a series of outbreaks of measles in this country, as you probably know. There's over 1,000 cases of measles in this country, the largest number of cases since 1992, I think. Um, and almost all the reporting in, in some, like, paragraph up toward the front of the article, it will say, it will have some comment about people who voluntarily don't vaccinate their children. Um, thus, as the 21st century unfolded, outbreaks of infectious disease, SARS, H5N1 influenza, H1N1 influenza, MERS, which is Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome, Ebola virus, measles, and Zika caused significant concern, as did voluntary non-vaccination. The, just, the juxtaposition of these trends, the increasing emergence of infectious disease and some people's beliefs that, disease, that vaccines are dangerous, underlines the double nature of public concern throughout this whole period, in which vaccinology advanced significantly and vaccines were developed, approved, and recommended at a swift pace, while concerns about vaccination also increased. In a context in which there is a heightened concern about emerging infectious diseases and the dangers of a globalized world in spreading them, the fact that some people repudiate vaccines becomes a significant focus of public health concern. In this way, parental belief, uh, belief and parental belief in particular seemed to be the cause of infectious disease spread, and the supposed vaccination crisis became a crisis of belief rather than, for example, a problem of logistical barriers or financial barriers, although it continues to be both for some people and families. While the overall rate of complete non-vaccination of children remains extremely low, less than 1% of the population. Okay, so there's been evidence, so this book went to press before there was like a little bit of new information about that. So that actual, that data point is actually slightly incorrect. I acknowledge it, but only because the book was like in press when the new data came out. Um, so, but, it, but overall the rate of voluntary non, complete non-vaccination of children still remains extremely low. Um, there is a perception that non-vaccination is a significant and widespread threat. Because there were so many professional attestations to the safety of vaccines, so the 2004 Institute of Medicine report on autism, thimerosal, and MMR, the retraction of the 1998 Lancet article by Wakefield and colleagues, the findings of the two, 2009 omnibus autism proceeding, for example, and I've discussed all of these previously. If you have questions about them, you can ask them during the Q&A. So there was, um, there's all this professional attestation from scientists, like we are finding no connections between autism and uh, these, uh, you know, problems with vaccines and any kind of um, persistent problems of health in the population. Um, beliefs against vaccination were easily presented as irrational and the result of improper public influence of celebrities, fake science, experts who were really charlatans, or just the internet. Thus, despite the fact that concerns about vaccines and their potential dangers have dogged vaccinology for over a century, the persistence of such concerns today contributes to the sense of a new crisis, 
especially as reporting on emerging infectious disease unsettles people's equanimity in a globalized world. The idea that belief is a primary problem has significant consequences. If the problem with low vaccination rates or clusters of children exempted from mandatory vaccination is belief, specifically wrong beliefs, then the solution is to change those beliefs through education. Yet studies have shown that this kind of public health intervention, the attempt to change the views of firm vaccine refusers, especially through correction with scientifically approved information, is not successful. There are a number of theories as to why this is the case, although many of these seem to further entrench the idea that vaccine skeptics are irrational. As I will show later in the book, vaccine resistance is often labeled denialist and likened to climate change skepticism or refutations of the fact that HIV causes AIDS. And I'm not going to talk about that tonight, but if anybody is interested in that issue, please ask questions. That argument portrays vaccine skeptics as people who purposefully ignore or repudiate good scientific evidence for no evident reason other than ignorance, prejudice, or self-interest. Indeed, some have argued that vaccine skeptics seem immune to convincing scientific arguments about the value of vaccination. To make the argument that vaccine skepticism is a problem of belief and not, for instance, a problem of public health policy and practice, concerns about government overreach, fears about corruption in medical research and the development of pharmaceuticals, or the result of actual bad experience with vaccination, these other ways of possible framing vaccination concerns have to be discounted or obscured. News reporting is one context in which the public's views are framed and interpreted, and thus it is a primary venue for the assessment of what a particular trend means, what its basis is, and how it should be understood broadly. In addition, representations of vaccine controversy affect the ways we think about it and shape our responses to disease outbreaks. As published debates about vaccination became more and more focused on the problem of the non-vaccinating parent, and the threat of the unvaccinated child, they left behind other concerns that had preoccupied parents and others in previous decades. This newer media focus reveals how the beliefs of non-vaccinating parents were targeted as a primary problem of national health. In the process, reporting contributed to the controversy rather than ameliorating or even really explaining it. Because of these trends, reporting on vaccination has done and continues to do a disservice to the American public. So I'm going to switch now and I'm going to look at um, the, this is the conclusion to, um, this is the conclusion to the second, the second chapter which also looks at media reporting. Um, so that section I just read was not the conclusion to the previous chapter, it was the lead up to it. So this kind of concludes, in some ways concludes both of the chapters. Vaccination controversy initially developed in a context that was not simply focused on fears of autism, although that is how the discussion is often framed now. My analysis confirms historian Elena Konis's conclusion that concerns other than autism have simply been left aside in the way that vaccination is treated in the media now. She reports, and so she has a book called Vaccine Nation um, that is really a great book published in 2014. I can't recommend it highly enough. It's a historical treatment of um, vaccines, uh, vaccine uh, policy and the history of vaccination from the Kennedy era um, through to about um, the early 2000s. 
She reports that vaccine, the vaccine autism story became increasingly frequent in the media as the 21st century progressed. Most important in my view is the significant earlier reporting trend that challenged scientists about their ethics, reliability, and results. So I talked about that earlier in this chapter. A reporting trend that simply dropped out of the publishing mix at a certain point. The concerns about shortages, soldiers, and various side effects also fell away, so that parental concerns about childhood autism appear to dominate the public sphere and are targeted as the primary reasons why vaccine skeptics don't vaccinate their children, as well as the primary problem with respect to vaccination in the country as a whole. There is some evidence that the rise of social media on the internet has affected reporting styles, as venerable news sources like the New York Times rely on website visitors to stay relevant. The advent of Twitter and Facebook as news sources influences the way that news is reported elsewhere. Most significant for my argument, however, are three of the issues that are evident in the mainstream and more neutral news reporting on venues. Coverage of bioterrorism and measures to combat it, the debunking of proposed links between MMR vaccine and autism and between thimerosal and autism, and the rollout of HPV vaccine. So these are three things, right? It, they basically are bounded by um, the 9-11 attacks in 2001 and then um, the rollout of Gardasil, the HPV vaccine in 2006. Um, so what I'm, uh, these trends emphatically linked mandatory vaccination to national security, vilifying those who challenged the claim, that claim or expressed worry about side effects or adverse events. They also characterized anyone concerned about vaccine safety and unknown vaccine risks as scientifically illiterate and provided a context in which conservative opponents of, so of a, a so-called cancer vaccine, right, Gardasil, could be ridiculed publicly, even though most attempts to mandate the HPV vaccine for school entry failed. Taken together, these were game-changing trends in reporting on vaccine skepticism. Change in news reporting, news reporting, changes in news reporting create as well as reflect changes in public perception. When parents express concerns about the ingredients in vaccines or worry about how many vaccines their children receive at single well-child visits to the doctor, authorities often respond that science has rendered their concerns moot. The analysis provided in this chapter suggests that the narrowing of vaccination concern to the issue of autism causation does not necessarily reflect the range of vaccination worries in the United States. Some of the most contentious issues that emerged in the HPV vaccine debate concerned whether the government should mandate a vaccine for a disease that is sexually transmitted. That is, if an illness is not communicated through casual contact and thus not likely to be spread easily at a school, is it appropriate to require the vaccine against it as a criterion for school entry? The classic reason that vaccines have been required for school entry is that the school itself threatens children because of the required close physical proximity, and consequently, they need to be protected from each other. But if a specific and intimate behavior like sex is needed to spread the disease, is it appropriate to require the vaccine for everyone? The hepatitis B vaccine rehearsed this question in the 1990s, and vaccine promoters won that battle. So the hepatitis B vaccine, if you're not familiar, is usually given on the first or second day of life to newborns, even though one could argue that most newborns are not actually at risk of hepatitis B. Um, and hepatitis B is a sexually transmitted disease. But with Gardasil, the situation ended differently with only Virginia, Rhode Island, and the District of Columbia requiring the vaccine for middle school girls. 
Because the vaccine was labeled the cancer vaccine, though, and because the objection to the vaccine came largely from the religious right, reporting portrayed these issues as typical culture war problems that conservatives have with teenage sexuality, not concerns about the reach of the government on the body of citizens. So now I'm going to, um, can anybody tell me what time it is? Okay. So um, I am going to read, I'm going to read um, a list of things. Um, it's on page 197 of the book. Just I'm going to read the list of things about, like, this, is, this chapter, uh, this list is called What Bothers People About Va Vaccines. And it's a base, this is a um, kind of a compilation of things that came from the interview studies that my research group did. Now, these interview studies are small, non-generalizable, so I want to be very clear, qualitative interview studies. Um, but I think they're suggestive, and they, my, to my mind, they suggest that we should be doing more research in this area. So these are, this is just a, a list. So the belief in the value of natural illness. Desire to avoid unnecessary medicine and treatment. Belief in nutrition as the first defense against illness and as essentially basic to health, often including specific and non-mainstream dietary advice. Enmeshment of ideas about health and the body with spiritual and religious practices. Alternative views about health and medicine, including holistic, herbalist, oriental, integrative, naturopathic, and chiropractic medical systems. Lived experience with illness, especially with illness that is not effectively treated by mainstream medicine. Protection of the body and control over what goes into the body experience with perceived vaccine injury, distrust of mainstream scientific studies of vaccine safety, distrust of medicine's entanglement with big business, especially big pharma and government, rejection of the idea that vaccines are necessary to health, perception that too many vaccines are given routinely to children, perception that vaccine mandates do not distinguish between less severe and more severe illness, Rejection of a one-size-fits-all prescription of vaccine mandates. Belief that parental responsibility for child health involves deliberate, deliberative decision-making about vaccination. Concerns about toxins in the environment, food, medicine, and household goods. Experience of being bullied by mainstream healthcare providers, primarily in birth experiences, but also in pediatric care. Responsibility to the community that involves not going out when sick global worries about how vaccination may change the world and children's futures, perceptions of children as persons with rights over their own bodies. So given the time, I'm going to skip now to the conclusion of the book, and I'm going to read from the conclusion, just about a page and a half. Vaccination controversy, including the decisions of radical vaccine refusers, raises questions about pub the public role of resistors in a bureaucratic democracy, allowing another interesting link. So I've just talked about um, Virginia Woolf, so I'm making a reference here. It's like an interesting link back to Virginia Woolf. And if you're interested in that question, you can ask in the um, Q&A. So the idea here is that um, there's a there are questions about the public role of resistors in bureaucratic democracies. Those who fashion themselves as vaccine safety advocates argue that they are acting as whistleblowers, revealing significant deficiencies in the licensing, recommending, and mandating of vaccines by federal and state bodies. 
Most of the vaccine skeptics that my research team has interviewed simply opt out of the system, either formally or informally, using their actions to articulate disagreement with immunization laws. How are public health decisions made in a bureaucratic democracy? The distrust apparent in our interview data as well as published work on vaccination demonstrates that the existing system does not engender trust in some people. As I have argued, promoting science and its data in favor of vaccination does not create trusting vaccinators out of skeptics, at least not the ones that we have spoken to, even though most of the people we have interviewed are not full-on vaccine refusers. The distance of most ordinary people from the agencies and committees that deliberate about vaccine licensure and approve vaccination recommendations is one way to characterize the problem. While the lengthy research protocols and licensing approval process are meant to ensure trust in the system, the obscured bureaucratic processes seem to make many people less trusting, especially when ex exposés show that many of those involved in decision-making are also insiders, either vaccine inventors or industry experts. In other words, the way, the way that large democracies work through legislative and bureaucratic mechanisms, both of which are often seen to be influenced improperly, is an obstacle to creating more trust in vaccines and vaccination recommendations. In the United States at this writing, there is not a lot of trust in government. I think that is still true today. It is not only political partisanship that is the problem, although partisanship contributes significantly to this lack of trust. It is that ordinary people do not see how their experiences and their views are represented in government decision-making, which is perceived to be dominated by elites. And this problem raises the question of how decisions about issues of public health, which are dependent on scientific evidence, are to be made in ways that the public accedes to. It is one thing to mandate clean water for all residents of a city and to clean up reservoirs and create sewers. It is quite another to demand that all citizens be given shots to keep them well. To what extent are citizens able to make a case for their points of view when their bodies are on the line? These questions go to the heart of modern forms of government and their promises to, to promote well, the welfare of their populations. Michel Foucault's later career was dedicated to understanding the origins of these problems in the 18th and 19th centuries. Current public contestations over vaccination represent one way that these questions and problems and the problems that they point to are made manifest. They reveal the nodes that draw together democracies and modernity in the dreams of self-government, independence, and triumph over nature. They demonstrate that techno-scientific modernity and democratic decision-making do not necessarily go together, especially when people feel that techno-science is aligned with big business and profit-making and not dedicated to the real well-being of ordinary citizens. Stories of viral pandemics and the zombie apocalypse alert us to concerns that go beyond predictable worries about meddling with dangerous microbes. They expose more basic anxieties about whom we can trust when the chips are down. Bureaucrats do not come off well in these depictions of the end of the world as we know it. Instead, the heroic actions of the few who are willing to buck the system usually save the day. Going rogue is a valued tradition in American culture. It is not unusual that some individuals choose to do so by avoiding or actively resisting state compulsion to vaccinate. So that's where I'll stop and we can start our conversation. Yes. We're gonna to transition to the audience Q&A portion of the event. So if you have a question, just raise your hand and I'll come around with the mic. 
Thank you. Um, my question would be, what, what part do you think like a history of illness would play in framing the debate? Like if people understood iron lungs for polio treatment and, and you know, some of the numbers of people that died through smallpox, do, does that swing perception at all? So I think it depends on what illness you're talking about and, um, and, and how, um, so there's a, there's a common there's a common trend in medical research that says one of the reasons why people are against vaccination is because they're unfamiliar with the seriousness of disease, right? So that's what you're really getting at. Um, so there have been some studies that have showed that that's not true. I can't, not off the top of my, they're not on the tip of my tongue, but there are some studies that show that that actual familiarity with disease is actually um, makes people more comfortable with not vaccinating. Um, so I think that and I think that one of the other things to think about with regard to that is the question of people's perception of the seriousness of disease. There are not a lot of people who think that if smallpox made a comeback, that would be a good idea, right? Um, but I do think that, so there was a, one of the things that Elena Konis does in her book, Vaccine Nation, is to show that in the 60s, there's development of three, the three major vaccines get developed in the 1960s, measles, mumps, and rubella. And um, there's a lot of effort that's made in the 1960s to convince parents that these diseases are serious enough to vaccinate against. In other words, people's perception is that measles is a, a right of childhood, a passage of childhood, and it, you have to you know, stay home for a couple of weeks, but most people recover, and therefore, and you know, virtually all people, it, who are, all children who are well-nourished um, recover from measles. And it's, it's very interesting because the, the perception now is that all of these diseases are tremendously serious. I'm not gonna make an argument they're not serious, but I'm just saying that people's perceptions on that differ. My 94-year-old father would tell you, he's a pathologist, but he keeps, when I talked to him about my book, he says, we had everything. He said, I remember measles and chicken pox and scarlet fever, and, and he said, everybody got sick. I never knew anybody who died. Now, I'm not saying people didn't die. But so there are questions about whether or not that kind of historical personal experience with illness is actually, would actually change people's minds. And I think that we need to do more and better research talking to people about their experiences. One of the things that we have found is that um, the, the people that we, some people that we interviewed were very persuasive in their belief that illness, illness and the recovery from illness is what makes you healthy. So if you never get sick, you're not really healthy. Your body needs to be supported through illness, but you're not. So, so that's where I would go with this to answer this question. I think it's, I would argue it's an open question about how the, how an experience with illness or understanding historically the seriousness of illnesses affect people's views on vaccination. Other questions? Yes, back here. Hi, so um, I sort of, I've always seen these pictures, uh, um, maybe you've heard of them too, that are, people almost frame them in their office and sometimes often physicians saying, don't confuse your 15 minute Google search with my four years of medical education. And I think very pithy quotes like that have sort of belied the fact that a lot of physicians don't empathize with their patients either and don't appreciate, say, their 15 years of illness and understand that. How can we better sort of communicate our openness to 
you know, as a, as a medical student myself, our openness to listen to patients and engage in their levels, even if, say, we do very much believe in vaccine efficiency. Um, so there's a, I would say, since I'm not a clinician, I, I try not to make, um, to give advice about how to actually, like, work with patients. What I would say is that um, the big debate right now in medicine, or one of the big debates, is the question about whether or not um, f physician practices that treat children should fire patients who are not vaccinated, basically. And that's a really uh, big debate in the medical literature. And some professional organizations have said, yes, it's okay to do that. Um, and then the question becomes whether fa those families lose a medical home and is it more important for them to have a medical home, but what happens if they bring infectious disease into the waiting room? So there's a lot of controversy and difficulty around those questions. Um, I think that um, one of the interesting, the way I would look at it is that we often in our society believe that patients should be doing research. We think that people should get more information. You, if you listen to, um, a really great uh, thing to do is to listen to morning news programs, which are usually oriented towards women, but, um, and, they'll, and they'll always be like a health section, and usually the last thing the person says, and it's usually a doctor, pretty prominent, and I'll say, do your research. Find out about this illness or this condition and ask your doctor about X, Y, or Z. So those are all things that parents and other patients are supposed to do, except when it comes to vaccination. So I think that what I would say is that one of the most important things that I look for in a physician is, some, is, not, is someone who is, is not going to sort of do that double, double talk, right? And, and, um, and also, you know, and, and I mean, I just had a, a doctor tell my father the other day, oh, you don't, you, I don't, I, I don't, I'm not in favor of that new um, shingles vaccine because I think that for somebody who's 94, if you have a, a bad reaction to it, you're, um, you know, that could be a problem for you if you're in bed for three days. Well, that was really interesting to me. So that tells me that this particular physician is discriminating about my particular father's conditions and what would be a good decision for him or not. So I, that was to be the other thing, is think about the specificity of your patient's experiences and, and, the, and them as people and how their beliefs or th ideas about vaccination fits in with everything else you know about them. How precisely does the anti-vax population map with the alternative complementary treatment movement population? So that's a great, that's a really great question. Um, and I, I don't really know. I think we don't really, there is no one anti-vax population is the way I would start that answer. Their um, vaccination concern is, is a really local, specific to people's social networks. And of course, the internet makes people's social networks a lot more fluid. But in a lot of ways, um, you have a lot of different communities. Historically, um, and I think this is the case today, historically there have been two large, diverse, but nevertheless kind of distinguishable kinds of groups that oppose vaccination. And by historically, I mean going back to like Britain in the 19th century when there were riots against the compulsory smallpox vaccination laws. So there was a like, a, uh, and this is a great book by a um, historian named Nadja Durbach called Bodily Matters that where I get this information. There's like a middle class anti ideological anti-vax movement 
that um, was really, um, you know, quasi-scientific arguments about the problems with the smallpox vaccine. And then there were a lot of working class people who just did not want the government telling them what to do, and they did not want to be vaccinated. And so, and then um, there's a great book about smallpox in the United States around the turn of the century by a historian named uh, Michael Wilrich. It's called Pox. And, and he basically identifies the same thing, right? So a more middle-class, educated, ideological, anti-vax movement, and then a bunch of people, working-class immigrant people, who don't want the government telling them what to do with their, with their kids' health. So, so I think now we have this idea that there's this, like, the anti-vax, you know, the, the wealthy, educated, mostly white, kind of granola crunchy, you know, and maybe alternative medicine sort of group who are opposing vaccinations. But that is, if you look at the big outbreaks of measles right now, that stereotype is not evident in the areas where measles is actually quite prevalent. You actually have a large outbreak in um, ultra-Orthodox Jewish communities in New York State. You had an outbreak in a um, Russian-speaking community in Washington, of immigrants in Washington State. Um, a few years ago, in 2014, there was a big outbreak among the Amish. There was a, um, last year or the year before, there was an outbreak among Somali immigrants in Minnesota. So what you see are, are actually a lot of variability. And so what I would say, this is when I, when I made the comment about the squeaky wheel. There is an ideological sort of anti-vaccine group or set or different groups in this country. Um, and they are different from the places where outbreaks of infectious disease are occurring. So I think what that shows is the diversity, actually, of, um, of vaccine stances and practices, and that they can't really necessarily be mapped onto any, any one group in particular. Now, among the people that we interviewed, there's a lot of overlap between people who believe in alternative medicine and practice herbalism and other forms of alternative medicine themselves. But we, inter we were looking in a community where, um, where there was a lot of, that was like the group of people that we were interviewing, right? So there was a lot of overlap because it's a small study and that's the community we were in. Hi, uh, thank you for being here. <laughs> Uh, there is a lot of power put into labels. And right now in the news you hear uh, anti-vaxxer or vaccine hesitancy or uh, vaccine deniers, and all those have very negative connotations. And so I'm curious, um, I've heard such terms as um, uh, informed consent for vaccines yeah. or pro-choice or you know, other things that have a different connotation. So I was wondering if you could comment about that, if there's any way of shifting that label within the uh, popular usage of media or by government or whatever else. I mean, unlikely, but. <laughs> yeah, so, so I, yeah, no, I mean, I spent a lot of time thinking, and I was very thought, thoughtful about that, like what terminology was I gonna use in the book? And so I tended to use vaccine skepticism in the book more than anything else, but now I like the term vaccine dissent because I think it's a, I think it's, 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 a, it's a practice oriented rather than necessarily like a, a belief oriented way of thinking about it. Um, I have two, a chapter in the book about denialism and the problem of thinking about vaccine um, dissent as a form of denialism and what it means when you call somebody else a denialist because I think that's, um, that's a particularly 
you know, those are like fighting words, basically. And so I agree. I think the issue of terminology is really, really important. Getting the media and, and others in popular culture to move the needle on those terms, though, is really, really hard. I mean, I mean, I wrote a pretty, what I thought of as a pretty benign op-ed for the Philly Inquirer that said, you know, like maybe mandates aren't going to do what you think they're going to do, and they're going to, you know, and 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 they're not going to solve the problem that you're identifying anyway. And it was like you should have read the. Com I mean, the comments were unbelievable. They were vitriolic, and um, you know, like you know, I mean, and so anyway, so so I'm not sure, like. We live in an era where, um, where there's a lot more flinging of these things around. And so, um, so I, I guess what I try to do, so like that's why I talk about voluntary non-vaccination. It seems like a pretty neutral term. I mean, it's like a, it's a mouthful, right? But, but it, it's very explanatory, right? People who are voluntarily not vaccinating themselves or their children. And that's, it's a, so I try for that kind of neutrality. And I think that if, if, if we all tried for that kind of neutrality, um, and um, I think it would be it would be helpful in because I think part of the a big part of the a big point right for my work is to figure out well where okay so outbreaks of infectious disease are serious and, and need the attention of public health, and we need people who work in public health to have good relationships with the communities that they serve. And no one is served well if a community feels alienated by the governmental agencies that are, that are necessary to come into communities to help, um, to help contain outbreaks of infectious disease, good, give good health care advice, um, tell people how to handle. I mean, there, was, there are outbreaks of pertussis in this neighboring community where, to where I used to live. And um, we spoke with the public health workers, and uh, you know, they were they had very good relationships with the families that they worked with. And so when, you know, somebody called them and said, my 10-month-old is, is coughing, they could say, you need to go to the emergency room right now. You need to call the emergency room and let them know you're coming so they can have, they can have a separate place for you to kind of arrive so your child is not going to infect others, so they're ready for your child. All those things are really necessary. And so part of my work is an attempt to sort of kind of like stop the flame throwing and find places where everybody has um, a kind of a common shared understanding of what the good common good might be so that we can have conversations and relationships that are more productive so I don't have an I don't have the uh, magic bullet as a solution but I totally agree that you've identified a problem we have time for just a couple more questions well, thank you for bringing in uh, this very interesting perspective on the vaccination issue. I want to raise a couple of issues because I'm trying to figure out exactly what to make of it. <clears throat> In other words, what, what the message is. Here. Um, I think you, you made a very good point about, for example, first of all, I think you make a very good point about paying attention to people's sensibilities, cultural issues, and all that. And we should not be demeaning uh, of those beliefs. I agree with that. But there is also, um, I think, if you look at it from a public policy perspective, and that's what I'm interested in, um, the issues are maybe slightly different. 
The reason I'm saying that is because, for example, you gave the example of sexually transmitted diseases and vaccines for that. Compare that with measles. These are very different things. And public policies, I think, can be and should be very, very different. For example, uh, yes, you're right. The, uh, when it comes to sexually transmitted diseases, it may be a personal choice or it may be more educational and all the rest and so forth. But when it comes to pandemics, think of Spanish flu. Think of Ebola. Think of diseases like that that can spread immediately and can, can kill billions of people in a very short period of time. So I don't think we have enough time or public authorities will have enough time to persuade people and uh, you know, work with them and all the rest of, uh, rest of it. I think there, there will be some times that uh, uh, vaccinations will be or have, they have to be uh, mandatory. So I think there is that big public policy issue there, and I think we shouldn't be just categorizing them or uh, you know, developing blanket public policies. Everybody should be vaccinated for everything, not necessarily. But when it comes to some key issues, I think we should be careful. Another issue that you raised, which made me think a little bit, was this. Uh, yes, I think I can see that anti-vaccine movement may be uh, a part of this anti-elitist, anti-government sentiments. And that is not necessarily correct. And I think at that point, as government or as perhaps some enlightened people, what should we do? First of all, I think we should not conflate bureaucratic decision-making with scientific inquiry. And as far as I know, at least from what I learned from my wife, she's in vaccine research, is that NIH, FDA have very rigorous procedures. So it is not some bureaucrat in Washington, Washington, D.C. making a decision about this vaccine, let's get it out there uh, immediately kind of decision. This is, a, in fact, a very, very rigorous process. Now, if people have some misunderstandings about that, that's bad. I mean, I, uh, yes, I, as much as I would like to respect everyone's opinion, that is wrong, essentially wrong. And I think at that point also, we shouldn't confuse scientific uncertainty with anyone's belief, anything goes kind of. Well, so, so, you, so raise a, you. Yeah, you raise a whole lot of really interesting questions. I would, I'll just say two things. One is that I think that the issue of mandatory vaccination is an issue of democratic societies. And so if, if, the, if, our, if, if we want there to be mandatory, I mean, those are, those are questions that we, we should be asking and talking about, about what it is that we expect in, in the event of a pandemic. Um, what, what we have right now is Actually, I would argue a really vigorous and successful public health containment of measles in this country, given what's going on in other in other countries, right, where there are tens of thousands of cases. With respect to the second issue, um, I think so. I'm just going to go out there and say that I think misinformation and incorrect understanding is the wrong way to approach the problem of vaccination controversy. Are there people who misunderstand and are, you know, are misinformed? Of course. There are a lot of people who are misinformed who get vaccinated too, and their misinformation is not uh, under, under you know, scrutiny. 
I, but I don't think but that, so I'll just say that it, I'm like, it is not successful. It is not a successful way of approaching. So there has been a lot of, of, of um, a lot of newsprint and a lot of other kinds of print, right, demonstrating that there has been no scientific evidence affirming a connection between vaccines and many of the problems that are associated with them, right? So most of us in this room know that, that there's a lot written about that. What I'm interested in is why that information has not changed many people's minds. Like that's an interesting question. What's sticky in a Malcolm Gladwell sense, right? What's sticky about the people's beliefs in that that, that, sign, that, that scientific confirmation is incorrect? If if the amount of print that has gone that has gone towards demonstrating and the amount of experiments that have gone towards demonstrating that there are no connections between vaccines and autism, for example, has not changed people's minds, then something really interesting is going on. So, it's, but it's not an effective way to say, well, these people are misinformed; they have to be educated. We've had that. That's that. That has not changed. In fact, that has made the scenario worse. So. Um, so that's the way I would respond to that. It's not that I think that you're, that, you know, I'm not saying you're absolutely incorrect in your assessment. I'm saying that I, you know, that what we have now, which is basically that, isn't working as a way to think about the controversy culturally and as a way to ameliorate a kind of inflammatory context in which what we do is throw names at each other and we don't actually get at, I mean, if you look at the reporting on the current measles outbreaks, especially in New York, through, I don't know, January through March. They were terrible every single time. Misinformation, you know, incorrect information. People believe that. About middle of March, you started to see some really interesting articles about the connections between the Orthodox Jewish communities in New York and Israel and the fact that in Israel, certain communities, every Rosh Hashanah, go to the Ukraine to pay homage to a very important um, deceased rabbi. And the Ukraine has tens of thousands of cases of measles because they have civil unrest, and you know, and, and they and they made some errors in purchasing their measles vaccine. They got it from a more expensive source. They don't have enough measles vaccine for their population. They have tens of thousands of cases in the Ukraine. So the cases from the Ukraine went to Israel, and then they went from Israel to New York through international travel. Right? That's a really interesting problem, and that is not necessarily a problem of wrong belief. Were there people in those um, counties in New York where um, children weren't vaccinated because parents were concerned about autism? Absolutely. But is that why there's an outbreak of, of measles in New York? No way. So once you, once you start getting the really kind of, and, and those communities had a disrupted relationship to public health because public health Officials had outlawed a particular form of circumcision that was traditional in those communities because of health concerns. So the relationship with public health was broken. So that's a different way of thinking about how do you create robust communities that have, that where public health and the people in the community can work together and they understand threats to the community's health. So that's the kind of way that I'm thinking that we ought to be retell retelling these stories about why we have outbreaks of infectious disease, why people are concerned about vaccination, and how do we protect the public's health? Final question on the stairs. Hi. Um, you talk a lot about the, um, 
role of mainstream reporting in vilifying people who don't believe in vaccination um, and really fueling and maintaining this narrative that these people are individuals who don't believe in science or are misinformed. Um, and you mentioned that part of the reason for this might be because inflammatory news is exciting and that brings in viewers. But I wonder um, if your research uncovered maybe some of the other incentives as to why the mainstream media doesn't report some of the stickier political issues around this topic and, and some you know, really good reasons for why people don't vaccinate that are more sound and grounded in logic. Um, so I'm not a media scholar and I kind of hitched on, like I, had, I did a little bit of that, but I kind of, but I, I really don't have it. I mean, that's a super interesting and important question. Um, I, I'm very frustrated with the reporting in the New York Times and the Washington Post, which are kind of like my go-to newspapers because they tend to actually be really, um, uh, like they just won't publish anything that is, uh, that questions the sort of, a certain kind of sort of official story around vaccines. And um, it's very, very frustrating. And especially it's interesting, if you go back to the 90s, a lot of reporting was very sympathetic to parents' concerns about thimerosal, which is the mercury, uh, the, the, uh, the preservative that includes ethyl mercury that parents and others were concerned about in vaccines in the 90s. And, um, and so there was a lot of really sympathetic reporting um, in Slate, in Salon, especially. And then around 2004, 2005, they both went, oh, and actually Salon published, along with Rolling Stone, Robert F. Kennedy Jr.'s um, article called um, uh, Deadly Immunity, which it's now like no longer available on their website. Really interesting. And, but then they went full bore like anti-anti-vax after that, right? And so, I would say that's a really, really interesting research project for somebody else. Um, can we give Bernice a round of applause? Thank you. You can ask me questions yeah. later. I know there are, there are still a few questions, but Bernice is going to stick around. She's going to sign some books, and she's, she's going to chat with you all. So um, uh, thank you, everyone, for coming. Have a great night. You have been listening to the Midtown Scholar Bookstore Author Reading Podcast. Please make sure to hit the subscribe button to keep up to date on all our newest author talks. After every event, there are limited quantities of signed copies of the featured books. Don't forget to grab your copy today. If you would like more information on Midtown Scholar Bookstore, please visit midtownscholar.com. The Midtown Scholar Bookstore Author Reading Podcast is a free podcast and does not own the rights to any of the readings.